This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Jim Mannion, the music director here at WFHB since the day this station went on the air in 1993. He's retiring at the end of this month. When we came to the end of last week's part one, he was speaking about the long, sometimes frustrating process of getting WFHB on the air. At the time, Mannion began juggling the schedule for what would turn out to be many hundreds of DJs through the years. Some of the earliest WFHB DJs had cut their teeth at Indiana University's cable radio station, WQAX. So that made their transition to this station that much easier. Why don't we jump back into the conversation with Jim Mannion? Here's part two of our chat. Also because of the experience many people had doing programs at the station I mentioned earlier, WQAX, Cable FM 100.3. That was essential because people were trained and ready to go. That was a cable station, so we had to pay more attention to FCC rules once we got on the air. It was more a question of scheduling people rather than training people to get on the air. And that really helped, too. And, and uh, I, I mean, there's names I can't even remember <laughs> at this point. I don't have a running total of how many DJs over 28 years. I saw some, somebody, not me, at WFHB wrote, the claim was that I had trained 10,000 DJs. And I'm like... Well, um, we don't have to issue a correction on that because it just, you know, it's, it's out there and it'll disappear. But it's not quite, not, not, not quite 10,000, but well over 1,000, I would yeah. say. Now, you've been quoted as saying, my work at WFHB is one of the main things I was born to do. How did you become the music director of all the different tasks that can be involved in running a radio station, you're the music guy. Why you? That's a big question, Big Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I got, uh, it could be a big answer, but it's a pretty simple answer. It's because of my awesome parents. My dad was in broadcasting, and he knew I had interest in it. So it was always like, hey, Jimmy, you want to go down to the station? Sure, Dad. You know, hang around the TV studio or just, you know. And it was mostly television back then. But my mother was from California. She was born in Evansville, but uh, like middle school through high school, she lived in Santa Ana, California. And she loved jazz. She was exposed to jazz as popular music when she was in high school. She told me stories about going to a double feature at a, at a movie theater and between the films, Dizzy Gillespie would play. You know, I just thought everyone had a cool mom who had played a bunch of jazz records all the time. <laughs> but um, uh, that ne wasn't necessarily true. But my, my mom and also my uh, aunt Sis, who was kind of an arts maven in Evansville, uh, who would take us to a lot of uh, classical concerts and 
and things like that. You combine that with my strong interest of just I love music from the first time I got a radio. It just spoke to me. There's also some musical DNA in my family. Um, I've played in a lot of bands here in Bloomington back in the day. You were uh, a drummer. I still am. You still are. My brother, he's, he's not retired, but uh, he was the keyboardist for the classic rock group Kansas for quite some time, David Mannion. And our great, great, great grandfather, Christian Decker from Germany was a piano builder. I feel like I'm kind of encoded to um, have a mind that latches on to music. And uh, that's really played into me being able to just sort of, oh, that would be a good thing to play now. Because, you know, my mind would kind of hear the sound of what I'm playing and then, oh, this thing sounds like that. But I've always had an interest in, like I said, when I was a kid, I made mixtapes. My mom and I used to go to the local head shop record shop and go record shopping. She'd get jazz records and, you know, I'd always get four or five records and more than once, you know, the hippie clerk at this record shop, Folt City, he'd look at those records and he goes like, man, you really know how to pick them out. It's just like this sort of genre hoppiness assortment of sound. And hey, that's what WFHB is. So, so, so you put together being exposed to, to behind the scenes in broadcasting which demystifies the whole thing and makes you sort of fearless about pressing buttons. And then you have this musical cultural influence from particular women in her family. It's very interesting. And it was my great aunt and my mother that, that contributed those sensibilities. Not that dad didn't like a little swing and jazz and Lord Buckley and all that stuff as well. I really look at that as uh, just what sent me in this direction. There was really no problem with me just sitting in my room playing records and uh, really getting into music and not being all that interested in sports. I once subscribed to Rolling Stone magazine. The first issue came and my mom said, I don't think your dad will want to see this. So when it comes, I'll just put it in your room for you. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) Were you spinning discs from the beginning of WFHB as well? Were you a DJ in addition to being the musical director? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always been part of my experience. And it's a really rewarding creative experience uh, when you have creative freedom on the radio. And that really balanced out the sometimes not so rewarding experience of, you know, being on staff and, and, you know, dealing with a lot of internal headaches and, and just too much work to do at all times. Uh, I don't think I, I, it's not, I don't think, I know I wouldn't have lasted this long had I not been able to be a creative music programmer and uh, uh, DJ on the radio. But, I was one of the first ones because before we went on the air January 3rd, 1993, you're allowed a m- one month of what you call test broadcasting. So uh, some of us did that. And I went out there quite a bit. I'd go out there two to four hours at a time, take a bunch of, of records, 
I would just go on the air. We had a phone out there, and and I would get the phone number out, and we'd say, "Hey, if you hear us, call us up. Let us know what you think." <clears throat> I remember going out there Christmas Day of 1992 because my then ex-wife and my children went out of town to visit her parents, and my girlfriend was out of town, and I was the Mister Lonely Christmas. <laughs> I got. I got in my van and took all the weirdest Christmas music I could dig up. One of those times, Mark Richardson brought me a pizza. I didn't even know him. Mark Richardson, who's still with the station. And I think I even said something on the radio like, hey, if somebody brings me some food, I'll stay on a little longer. <laughs> he brought me a pizza. I wish people could see you at work during your air shift. There's this this whole sort of ritual thing, you close the blinds and the lights are lowered and you're sitting there at the board and you are intense. You are concentrating, you're, you're there. Are you gonna continue doing air shifts after you retire at the end of the month? Uh, on WFHB, not, yeah. for, not for quite some time. I have to take a, a total break from uh -huh. it. I think one of the reasons you have that impression, Mike, is that <laughs> the intensity comes from, I'll reveal one of my <clears throat> trade secrets, but I rarely play on a radio show. It's all, I'm all sh shooting from the hip. I mean, uh, I might have a few ideas about a few tracks I want to play, but it's improvisation, uh, essentially, and in a weird way, and I don't even know what to call it, but... You develop some intuitive sense as well. I mean, sometimes I would just randomly go, okay, I'll, I'll play that one. And, you know, it's a song that turns out that is in the same key and has a similar sounding harmonica or something. But I hope to continue in some way. Now that I have the ability to broadcast from home, uh, there's a low-power community radio station in Louisville that... I helped them out in their early days with some training and whatnot. And I actually might get a little late night show down there. They've offered it to me, but whether I want to commit to that, because let me get down to the nitty gritty here, Mike. One of the reasons that I feel like I have to move on now is that broadcasting has a certain anxiety level to it and it's not being on the radio it's the broadcast clock and if you're on the staff at a radio station you're constantly aware of what time it is what programs got to be on you're listening in to check in how people sound and it's like 24 7 you know and i just i need a break from the broadcast clock pure and simple i need to pull away from managing people and i just want to get back to some of my more creative aspirations i just didn't see myself as one of those radio people that sticks around until they have to wheel them out because to be honest i put a lot of things aspirations to the side to concentrate on this for almost three decades now and i've kept uh you know, musically active and some other, you know, photography and writing and things I've, I've done on the side throughout my time at WFHB. But I'm going to see how all that stuff works for me 
if I'm not working at WFHB. Yeah. But first, I'm going to take an entire year off and just think about it. So, and do nothing. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully going to do some traveling. Yeah. Uh, my youngest daughter, Karina, is up in Vermont now, Burlington, Vermont. Uh, her and her partner opened a bike shop up there. Riley's still here. She's the uh, production manager for the Secretly group of uh, record labels here in Bloomington. So um, I always got to get a plug in for those Mannion girls. They turned out uh, pretty awesome. Now, it would seem to me that if I were in your position, I would be in constant dread and fear that someone's going to call in and say, I can't make my air shift. Did that happen often? And what did you do? Well, that's why I'm leaving, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) That happened very often. And most people are really good about it, about lining up subs. And some people have, no, don't get me wrong. There's legitimate reasons why at the last minute they can't come in. So, you know, it's not frustrating in that way. But especially before we had any form of automation, and before that we had a funky setup with iTunes for our overnight programming that would go haywire if someone breathed on it wrong. And so sometimes I'd have to get up in the middle of the night and go down and fix that. But no, the worst for me was turning on the radio at uh, 10 after 6 and realizing somebody for whatever reason, didn't show up for the 6 to 8 a.m. DJ shift, and I'd have to go down there uh, and, you know, get get on the radio as quickly as possible and also be there uh, to get Democracy Now! on the air. We really hear about it when Democracy Now! doesn't oh, make yeah. it to the air through, through technical errors. I have this vision of you constantly listening to WFHB just to make sure. Was it like yeah, and that? Yeah, and, and, you know, at least WFHB doesn't suck. I mean, it's <laughs> like, uh, it's not a problem to listen to WFHB, but when you listen to it with that staff ear, yes. and, you know, we have so many DJs, in, including myself, you develop these sort of habits where you kind of say the same thing every time you open the mic. I guess my point is, I'm not here to critique DJs. There's a difference in radio listening in terms of attention. Uh, Most people don't listen to the radio with 100% attention. But when you're on the staff, uh, of course you're listening with that intention. So that's uh, attention. You you are listening with that that 100% attention. You know, that's part of the sort of constant low-level anxiety that goes with being in broadcasting, along with all the deadlines that are there, production deadlines or whatever deadlines. I'm actually, I don't know how long it'll last, but I think once I'm gone, I may just, I may have to stop listening to WFHB for a short period of time just to get out of that mindset, right? just so that, I, that I'm not worrying about who's going to show up. Or if, you know, I hear something go wrong with the automation, oh, I got to jump on the, the computer and log in and fix it. Well, I don't have the password anymore, so I can't fix it. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a little kind of a self-care thing that I think I'm going to do for a while. And I got a lot of albums here at home that, that I haven't listened to full length in a long time. And so I think I just need to, <clears throat> to readjust how I listen to the radio. Uh, it might not even last a month because WFHB's so awesome, but I think I do have to sort of make a break mentally. One of the signature programs on WFHB is Local Live. Whose idea was that? That was mine. Uh, yeah, it has a very uh, distinct beginning. It was at the end of 2006, and the legendary Second Story Nightclub ended its 25-year run in Bloomington. And uh, just a huge, huge piece of a number of phases of the Bloomington music scene in terms of access to performance, in terms of a stage. And so this was <clears throat> before the Bishop Bar opened and before there was, well, there was some um, beginnings of uh, Players Pub, but not quite what it, it uh, grew into. Later on, the Blockhouse Bar wasn't open. So basically, there was no venue besides, the, you know, the Bluebird and the bigger clubs, which was, you know, naturally a harder nut to crack uh, for an up-and-coming local band. I'm in no way dissing them because actually the Bluebird has a lot of Battle of the Bands and local music nights and stuff as well, but not quite the same overall thing as a as a place like Second Story was. So I, I knew that Bloomington needed a stage, and I was like, well, this is a stage. It's a radio station, and we have a studio where we, people can play, and let's invite local bands in every Wednesday night, and uh, we'll get them on the air because they have no place to play. And I hosted and uh, uh, produced that show for maybe the first two years, and then it the directorship or whatever you want to call it of local live was passed along to some great people, Abe Morris and uh, Nicole O'Neill. That turned into a very significant thing that we will bring back after COVID. You know, we ran reruns for about six months and then it started sounding weird with people talking about how, you know, they were going to be playing next weekend. And when we actually knew they weren't, but it also resulted in a run of 10 CDs. And we were really heavy at the beginning with going out once a month to recording studios and doing remote broadcasts. Russian recording was really big at the, at the front end of that. Mike was just super gracious at inviting us in there every month. Mike Pradavsky, the owner there, and a variety of studios. And we did get one on the air during COVID, from the Joshi studio at IU. Our good friend Jake Belzer, who also runs Primary Sound, teaches over there. He helped us get that on the air. And we'd done that a couple times before, but our crew had always gone over there. That was a very interesting night where um, the students handled the entire live broadcast. Nobody from WFHB was there. All I had to do was go into the radio station and get the feed on the air and kind of hosted from the radio station but we uh, were really anxious to get back to that 
once COVID passes, you know, I won't be involved with that. We, we got a whole crew of people hungry to get back to that. And when I'm a real old dude, like, you know, 75 or something <laughs> in about 10 years, uh, I can see myself coming back and just helping with those crews. I love that kind of stuff. And I've uh, been around it all my life. So, um, yeah, I'm not going away forever, but I'm just going away for a while. It's got to be hard to believe it's it's getting near 30 years that WFHB has been on the air. And according to lore, this is something I found. Uh, tell me if this is true or not, that the first sound heard on WFHB was an old gong. Yes. And then, like, at the 20-year celebration of WFHB, a bunch of people, including uh, then Mayor Cruzan and uh, Brian Carney himself and uh, IU Provost Lauren Robel, they came uh, to the big party celebrating, and they actually hit that gong. Do you know whatever happened to that gong? The owner of that gong was was uh, Chancellor of the University, Herman B. Wells, who we would not be on the air without because he really helped us fundraise. He really helped us get into the Waldron. He was a huge advocate for WFHB, and that was that ranks up there with with you know personally my one of my biggest honors that Herman Wells saw the importance of the idea that we had because it's kind of ancient history at this point but Her, because Herman Wells used to hang around with Hoagie Carmichael that's how far back he goes wow. in this town and and you know he passed in his I think he was 94 or something when he when he passed away but he was a key person in establishing educational FM radio when, when, you know, like in the 1950s, he was on some national task force and was a key advocate for the use of FM for non-commercial reasons. And to have him recognize what we wanted to do as an important aspect of that, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. Jim, I have loved radio since I was eight years old, and I was listening to a transistor radio all night long with an earphone in my ear under the covers, listening to the Beatles and so forth. I always wanted to be in it. I always wanted to be around people like you, radio guys. You are a radio guy. Jim Mannion, the music director of WFHB, is going to retire at the end of this month. I can't believe it. I don't even know if he can believe it, quite frankly. Uh, can you, Jim? I can, because I've thought about this for a long time. <laughs> we don't want to get into this, but there were some points in WFHB's history uh, where we really kind of had some slumps where I was ready to bail, but I stuck with it. And uh, there was also a period where the, where the paycheck wasn't enough, you know, from the time I was 40, 50 years old, between working at WFHB and working part-time at Cats TV and being yeah. a free, freelance writer, I was working 60 to 80 hours a week for 10 yeah. years. But you uh, love radio. Yes. And I just, I know we're getting to the end here, Mike, but I have uh, one other story that, that will go back to 
to your point about, you know, I talked about going to the record store with my mom and picking out a cool bunch of records. But there were two things I used to do in Evansville when I was about 14 to get out of the house um, and check out music. One would be to go down to take the bus downtown and go to the, the Kresge store on Main Street. And they had a little shop upstairs where you could, uh, they sold 45s. And they had uh, the the little sheets of paper that were, you know, the top 40 at the local stations. And I got really into looking at that. And they had a jukebox that were all the new records. So I would stand in there and I would pick out songs and guess how I picked out the songs. I would play one and go, okay, which one is going to sound better after that? <laughs> and which one is going to, so I was basically doing a radio set on the jukebox at the Kresge store and I have one profound memory. Do you remember the Canned Heat song, uh, On the Road Again, that opens with a sitar? Yes. And then it... Doom, 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 yep. doom. And then that guy starts singing in that real high voice and, and you know, blowing a little harp. And if I had a picture of me standing there with my mouth open, hearing that song for the first time. <laughs> and, and I used to do the same thing. I told you I lived across the street in my high school years, uh, across the street from the University of Evansville. So I would go over there to the, the little, you know, snack shop where they had a jukebox and all these hippies would hang around. And I'd go over there with my books and think I looked like a college student. <laughs> but, but I would go do the same thing on the jukebox and put the dimes in there and pick out the songs and, and you know, really hope that these hippies thought I was cool. <laughs> um, and, and one more thing back to, to Top 40 Radio and just music in general. I was in high school from 1968 and 1972. And, you know, just think about the, the especially rock music that happened during those times. But all the things that we were exposed to as kids back then, like Ravi Shankar at Monterey, which I saw, you know, on the Monterey pop film when I was a little kid, it was just a real good time to be exposed to musical culture. A radio man, a music man, Jim Mannion, music director, WFHB, ready to retire at the end of this month, May 2021. Jim, I personally thank you for everything you've done over these decades at WFHB. Jim, Thanks so much for being on Big Talk. Well, thank you. And we've only scratched the surface, Mike. So, you know, maybe we can check in in, you know, a number of years and see what's going on. You can listen to both parts of my conversation with Jim Mannion, the only music director this station has ever known. He's retiring at the end of this month by going to WFHB.org. I'll also post the raw audio of our interview on my personal website, ElectronPencil.com. I thank Jim Mannion for sharing memories of his life and this radio station. Good luck, Jim, and keep in touch. This is Michael Glab, and this is Big Talk.